Hello everyone and welcome to Public Health Musings. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kingori, a faculty member and a public health researcher at Ohio University. Our guest is Dr. Dawn Graham, an Associate Professor of Instruction in the Department of Social Medicine at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. She earned a doctorate in counseling psychology from Purdue University in 2010 and Master of Arts in Applied Behavioral Science from Valparaiso University in 1999. Clinical experience includes work at the University of Chicago Hospitals, Michigan City Area Schools, Purdue University, Potter State Community Mental Health, and Logan Sport State Psychiatric Hospital. She also has extensive experience running multi-million dollar federal grants to promote maternal and child health in southeastern Ohio with university and community partnerships in coordination with the Ohio Department of Health. She's a member of the American Psychological Association and previously acted as a chair of the Ohio Psychological Association Public Sector Issues Committee. She has participated in national webinars and speaking engagements um, on rural behavioral health with a match of dimes with SAMHSA, the American Institutes for Research, and her areas of um, interest include creativity and mental health, community psychology, rural health, and policy change. Her current projects include qualitative research on integrated healthcare in rural settings across the U.S., she has also been involved in other studies that look at the impact of compassion fatigue for healthcare professionals working with underserved patients and spent years teaching trauma-informed care and mindfulness to health professionals. In addition to that, she volunteers for Habitat for Humanity, Ohio University Women Mentoring Program, as well as other different programs. Um, she also, on her downtime, enjoys camping and fishing and many other hobbies. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Graham. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. It's an honor. So your expertise is in counseling psychology. Could you tell us a little bit about why you were interested in this field and why it became your profession? Sure. So I've always known that I like to help people. And from a very young age, I wanted to be a teacher, a healer, um, a counselor. I found that when I was young, um, I found that listening to my friends, they would come to me when they needed help, and it, it came very easily to me. And counseling psychology in general is a discipline in psychology that's a little bit different in the fact that it emphasizes strengths of people and resilience. Um, it focuses on the roles of work and career on people's lives. It's very culturally influenced and oriented towards social advocacy and global health. And it just really seemed to be something that fit with me on all levels. Awesome. So thinking about the health of individuals um, and looking at this podcast, which looks at the overall health of the public, what is your understanding of public health and what do you think is the intersection of public health and counseling psychology? Um, my understanding of public health is basically the, pr the promotion of health within their community. So it's the promotion of health and population. And I think that the intersection of public health and psychology is, cannot be separated. Um, it's very closely tied. Uh, psychological health of a community dictates both the behavior, the culture, and public life. And so I think, you know, though you know, individuals have their own psychology, so do 
cultures, so do neighborhoods, so do nations and um, and countries. And so I think that the intersection is, is closely very linked. So when we think about psychological health of a community, uh, I think we are also talking about mental health. And it's definitely a very important issue in our overall well-being. Uh, why do you think that it's not well understood or addressed in our healthcare system? I think that one of, you know, one of the major barriers for mental health being uh, addressed is stigma. Um, but some of the differences that we found in terms of why it's not addressed in healthcare systems overall is that oftentimes the policies and the way that healthcare is, is paid for um, is not reflective of the true values of what people think about. Um, you know, we're getting there, but, but it's a long way. So what do you think we would need to, to do to advocate for um, more of that focus on mental health with our policymakers as, um, with regard to the healthcare system? Sure, that's a great question. I think that in terms of letting policymakers know uh, more about mental health, I think that, you know, there's a lot of wonderful currents um, that are beating the stigma. I think you, using platforms such as social media and group forms so that uh, people have you know, chat rooms where they can not feel as alone really helps the individual. In terms of policy, um, I think one of the most effective uh, ways to beat the stigma for mental health treatment and mental health and mental illness in general is to really um, develop relationships with policymakers. Uh, one of the wonderful opportunities that I had through a multi-million dollar federal grant called Project Launch in Ohio really uh, enabled me as a, both a clinician and as a, a principal investigator to really have conversations with the policymakers uh, about the challenges and the barriers to getting mental health care, particularly in rural areas. Uh, for example, for several years, I, what we call the ICD-10 codes, which are basically the billable coding, uh, how a, a provider uh, bills for services, they were not able to bill for services for the same day for psychology as they were with other professions. So if somebody came down with, say, brain cancer, they could see their oncologist, they could see their neurologist, they could see their primary care specialist all in one day, but if they went to their psychologist, the psychologist couldn't bill because of the way that the policy and structures were set up. So by developing relationships and having ongoing communication with the policymakers themselves, um, you can really understand a little bit about how those decisions are made and then concurrently be able to communicate with the policymakers about how that looks on the ground and what that looks like in terms of day-to-day -day healthcare. I think that would be a fantastic first step is uh, ensuring more consistent communication between policymakers and the providers themselves. I think this is great progress that there is that open communication. We do hope that, uh, you know, it will be remedied in the healthcare system and more people can have access um, to mental um, care services or mental health services. So I noticed that um, during your time at Ohio University, you have worked um, extensively with students um, and also previously as a mental health counselor. What do we need to know about mental health outcomes among college students? Sure. Um, well, there's quite a few things to know. Uh, one of them uh, is in being the forever optimist as I am, um, you know, there are a lot of amazing strengths about today's college student. I think today this generation's college student um, is the most technologically savvy that we've ever had um, in my 20-some year career. Uh, they're also very 
culturally oriented social advocacy, social justice and awareness. They're very motivated to make a difference in their world. That being said, you know, along with that comes challenges of, of increased anxiety. Um, our students today have so much more access to resources than you, know, you, you or I did even uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and I think that this generation of college students in particular is very highly anxious. They're very highly motivated. Um, you know, this culture in particular, a lot of these students have been, uh, have, uh, as we call it, helicopter parents. Um, not all of them by any means, but a lot of them have had a little bit more shelter in terms of experiences in life. Um, and so that heightens anxiety. And um, through other means, we know psychologically that you know, isolation is the number one killer and it's actually a public health epidemic. Um, and if you add a global pandemic on top of that, unfortunately those things can really um, concentrate into some difficult mental health challenges. Uh, but this, today's college student really is a lot more independent in terms of being able to access resources globally um, in, in the blink of an eye. And so I think that with the challenges of a heightened anxiety um, that we're seeing that, that, are, that is unprecedented, that there are a lot of very practical, logical ways that uh, this generation's college students and populations in general can reduce anxiety because it's very treatable uh, without medication. So you know, the challenge of, of, of heightened levels of anxiety um, that, that are actually through the roof right now and that they're being compounded by this global pandemic uh, is very treatable. Wonderful. And what would you say to their parents um, in terms of trying to deal with the over-sheltering um, or the helicopter parenting that you've uh, pointed out? How can they help their children with uh, dealing with this anxiety? Yeah, that's an excellent and very complicated question, uh, Dr. Kigori. I think, uh, I think one of the first things in terms of, you know, as a clinician, is, is to build awareness that a lot of parents don't even realize that they're helicoptering. Um, I think that a lot of them, you know, the, the intention is to continue to uh, make their children safe. And unfortunately, in, in extreme circumstances, it's, it's actually making the problem worse because they shelter them so much that when uh, a, a child grows up and, you know, being a parent, a parent myself, you know, it's hard to watch your child fail However, that's what builds resilience. Um, and learning from mistakes is really what makes somebody, uh, you know, the, the trajectory to adulthood a healthy one. Um, and so that the more that you shelter someone or protect them from, you know, typical life things or not talk them through difficult decisions uh, or avoid confrontation or avoid difficult conversations, the, the more that sheltering is compounded and that actually in the long term doesn't benefit the child. So I would say awareness is probably the first step. Awesome. So I see that you are also doing some research on um, examining compassion fatigue among healthcare providers. Could you tell us more about that? What is compassion fatigue? Well, compassion fatigue often happens when a provider of any type, a medical provider, occupational therapy provider, speech pathology, anyone who works with a high volume, high need population basically burns out. So there's, you know, there's several definitions you can look up, you know, six or 12 different definitions of compassion fatigue. But it's basically when, when a helper helps too much without taking care of themselves. And I've had an incredible opportunity 
um, to learn from a lot of our rural health providers about ways to combat compassion fatigue. Uh, one of my colleagues uh, who is a family, family practice doc and has been a palliative care physician for the last 30 some years, she and I went through a wonderful training program called the Center for Mind-Body Medicine headed by uh, Dr. James Gordon who is a Harvard trained psychiatrist. And we worked together through the Center for Mind-Body Medicine and went through advanced training so that we learned a curriculum to help healthcare providers in rural settings in high-volume, high-need populations really learn how to regulate, self-regulate their emotions so that you know, the compassion fatigue doesn't set in, so that if they see or hear trauma over and over and over again, it doesn't impact their, their, their health. Um, my colleagues, uh, Sue Meeks and Dr. Joe Bianco, um, Dr. Tracy Schaub and myself were able to secure a grant several years ago through the Ohio Government Resource Center called MedTap. And basically it was to prevent burnout and to really sustain and prevent brain drain basically from the state of Ohio to recruit and retain healthcare providers in the state of Ohio and not lose them. And so this was part of our efforts to join them. And I had a, a fantastic opportunity to work with the local chronic pain clinic, working with the, the local OBGYN clinic, working with fourth-year medical residents, and training them how to take better care of themselves. Um, I say I've got the best job in the world uh, because, you know, selfish better care of themselves. I have to, I have to do those practices as well. Um, I was very much a skeptic going into this, and I realized that I needed to try it on myself before I could either teach my students or train my patients. To, for mind-body medicine. And so for about three and a half years now, I've been meditating pretty much on a daily basis. And it, it, it not only affects your psychological health, but it also affects your physiological health or your, very directly. So it lowers blood pressure. It lowers, um, it, it increases lung capacity and volume to breathe. It really just helps you sleep better. It decreases anxiety, decreases insomnia, decreases depression. Um, and I know that meditation and mindfulness is very much in psychology right now, but our friends in the East have been practicing this for thousands and thousands of years. And so, you know, the West and, and the United States in particular is a little slow on the uptake, um, but it really is self-care and self-medicine, and I think that the connection between the mind and the body cannot be understated. And so through the compassion fatigue work that we did through MedTap, we, we were able to kind of spread that knowledge, and it's been quite an honor. That's wonderful news, and I'm glad you bring up the topic of um, meditation because it's definitely something that I do as well, and I have found it to be very beneficial. And when you talk about how you were um, skeptical at first, but then you tried it on yourself, I think that was uh, uh, something that was a breakthrough for you in even trying to reach out to your own patients and, and students and giving them something that you have tried yourself. And I just had one of my MPH students that I interviewed recently, and she talked about how the importance of, um, you know, practicing what we preach, um, even as we focus on the health of our communities. Absolutely. I mean, I think I, I couldn't in good, in good standing practice something that I didn't believe in myself. Um, and in, in contrary to popular belief, meditation doesn't just mean um. Uh, you know, like that's not the kind of meditation for everybody. There's movement meditation, dancing meditation. Um, there's, you know, in various disciplines and religions all over the world have been using types of meditation for thousands of years. 
I agree. And speaking of meditation and mindfulness, you're also engaged in trauma-informed care and mindfulness. Could you tell us a little bit about that and also the role of trauma in mental health? Sure. So along with physical, sexual, or psychological trauma, uh, I'm also thinking about long-term trauma in terms of, you know, for our people of color, microaggressions, um, things that are, you know, culturally uh, disvalued by other people. Um, those things over time are cumulative, and those have direct negative effects to our psychology as well as our physiology. And so, you know, trauma-informed care is really, it's a series of didactic lectures, like teaching people what, you know, what the impact of trauma is, not only individually, but in our community and within a country, that a country can be, uh, it can sustain, you know, trauma, historical trauma. Um, is also, you know, stored in the cells of the body. And so teaching people about trauma-informed care will, can help mitigate compassion fatigue because oftentimes people just don't have a word or a name for what they're feeling. And so through this work, we've been able to provide that to them and give them the tools to help themselves uh, feel better, both psychologically and physiologically. Wonderful. Um, and I... I'm, I'm very jazzed by you indicating that trauma um, can be stored in the cells. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit about that? Sure. So I'm not a physiologist by training, uh, but I do know that, you know, uh, for things like a death in the family or a tragic loss, um, that our brains do remember those things for years to come. Um, that, you know, those, those psychological traumas that people have that we, we're we're stored in our body, uh, we also give to our children in our families and the way we react to things that might not feel like they're rational or, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, we might not know how we react to things, but our body responds anyway. And those things are not only stored in our body, but they're also given to our children and the people around us. And so by educating people about what trauma and trauma-informed care is, we're giving them the tools to not only recognize and be aware, but to stop that cycle for future generations, which it's, I find very exciting as a researcher. Indeed, um, you're definitely engaged in some pretty exciting work. And I you know, want to know more about um, the, the work you're doing with your partners in the rural settings. Um, what does primary care and public health look like in those contexts? Sure, that's a great question, Dr. Kingore. I think it, it can it can look very different um, with the with the grant that we worked in for to promote and empower women with um, maternal child health. Um, one of the charges for the federal government through the Health and Human Services SAMHSA grant was to create offices throughout Southeast Ohio in the counties of Athens, Meigs, Vinton, and Hocking where integrated, we integrate behavioral health and primary care, and they looked very different. So in one circumstance, we, we didn't have the, the, the funding to hire psychologists, so we used you know, fourth-year doctoral students who were being supervised and put them in the local OBGYN clinic to help fight maternal, child, or maternal depression. Um, in another clinic um, up here in Hocking County in Logan, uh, we literally had a uh, mental health, community mental health center rent space from a primary care doc's office and provide real-time behavioral health access um, in his office. Uh, another, a third uh, example of behavioral health primary care integration was putting psychologists literally down the hallway from a very, very busy 
pediatric office so that if a pediatrician had a question about whether or not a child had ADHD or perhaps um, was on some form of the autism spectrum, then she or he could walk the child down the hallway with the parent and have real-time services for diagnoses. Um, and finally, one of, one of our, our greatest, um, I would say, successes was being instrumental in helping a local federally qualified healthcare center uh, literally combine with a community mental health center so that you know, one person didn't have to go one place for their physical health and another place for their mental health. Uh, one of my, my uh, physician friends who was a medical director at the federally qualified healthcare center, which primarily sees people who are underinsured or uninsured, at one point, she said that up to 70% of her patients had a co-occurring mental health disorder. And if somebody has to choose between food and going to the doctor, they're going to choose food. Um, or if they have to choose between food and medicine to treat their depression, they're going to they're going to choose to eat and feed their families. And so, you know, one of the things that is so important about behavioral health and primary care integration is that we're no longer we're on we're on the the path to no longer separate our mind and body. That mental health is health. And so, those situations, particularly in rural settings where transportation is an issue, um, you know, driving an hour and a half for specialty care is an issue for many of our families and our community members. Um, this is helping to bridge the gap. And that's great news um, when you speak about the integration of health uh, healthcare services in rural settings. It's something that we are seeing in so many other uh, rural and underserved communities here in the United States, but also internationally. And the fact that it really does help with reducing duplication of services, but also meeting um, the community members' needs, um, you know, in a much more sensitive way. So you have also engaged in training projects um, that are focusing on working with community health workers. Why focus on the CHWs and what is so intriguing about them? And again, we can't take credit for the, the utilization of community health workers training. In fact, um, you know, you and I have done global work together in Southern Africa, and Southern Africa has been using community health workers uh, for decades um, and, and centuries perhaps, basically using community lay leaders to help provide access to care for their neighbors. Um, and similarly, like in the other grant, um, I had a really amazing opportunity to work with um, one of my, my colleagues in social in, in community health programs to write and, and run a project to where we became master trainers. We brought master training to this rural community um, to certify community health workers through the Board of Nursing. And then um, Carrie Shaw and myself, along with our colleagues from the Athens County City Health Department, uh, developed a training program uh, through the Board of Nursing where we can uh, train community health workers to work in either hospital settings, uh, lifestyle medicine clinics, working, um, sometimes they're employed through uh, managed care corporations such as Molina um, or uh, other, you know, other insurance companies to go out and reach out to patients who might be on the cusp. So maybe it's type 2 diabetes management or with the most recent opioid crisis. We, do, we have a community health worker right now who has recovered from substance abuse herself and decided she wanted to give back to the community. So she went through the community health worker training, uh, is, got certified, and is now working at a woman's recovery home. And so community health work 
is really a very effective way to meet the needs of people who might not otherwise seek services or might be on the cusp of a chronic long-term health condition. And if we can mitigate that, stop that before it gets to a public health crisis, um, then that's what prevention is. And it's definitely a public health and uh, psychological service. And that's wonderful news because, again, as we know, in this rural and underserved communities, uh, we don't have access to many of the uh, trained healthcare providers. And so working with our community health workers does help bridge that gap. It, it does, absolutely. It, it bridges the gap. And on the other end of it, you know, if you think from a financial perspective, from the, you know, from the brain drain of Ohio, you know, we... The, you know, the brain drain problem is that we, we create all these brilliant, we've got all these brilliant community members and they come and they come to college here and they learn all this stuff and then they go to another state. You know, community health worker training is definitely um, a job development. So we, there's, there's really wonderful fiscal implications of developing community health worker trainings because you're giving people jobs, you're making their jobs useful, and it's already enrolled in the healthcare system. And so, you know, if you can if you can get somebody into healthcare sooner and get, say, they're, you know, if they're type 2 diabetic, get their insulin under control, then they're less likely to go into, you know, insulin shock, into a coma, going to the ER, which costs thousands of dollars to society if that person doesn't have insurance. So it really is a return on investment from a public health perspective if we can really truly utilize, train, utilize, and keep our community health workers in rural settings. I definitely agree with that. Um, and when you also look at the trust that communities have, I think working with the community health workers helps with that um, aspect because, as we know, communities um, are wary of um, researchers and healthcare providers who are not from that particular um, setting. And so, again, we can utilize um, the relationship that they have with the community health workers to influence their um, health outcomes and their health behaviors. Absolutely. If somebody trusts another, they're more likely to listen to them and get the help that they need when they need it, particularly if that person looks like me or sounds like me, you know, and I'm not just talking about, you know, racially or religiously, but like Appalachian culture is a culture in and of itself that has a longstanding and, you know, understandable history of mistrust to the outside community, and particularly for universities and researchers. Um, and, the, and big government. And so by utilizing people in their own communities, in their own neighborhoods, it really is, you know, it really is fighting a battle um, in the right direction. Wonderful. And so as we wind up, uh, could you describe some of your most interesting findings in your research work? I mean, you've already talked about quite a bit, but I'm sure there's some that stood out. And what do you think were the overall public health implications? So, you know, I think a couple of takeaways that, that I came out with is, you know, some of the trauma-informed care work that my colleagues and I have done, we found that, um, it's interestingly enough, and this is not a, a large enough data set to, to publish quite yet, uh, yet is my, the key word here, um, but really uh, the somatic complaints of, of healthcare workers who deal with large, high-volume, high-need populations uh, manifests itself very differently in terms of trauma and how it affects the body. So we found um, a very small sample size, albeit, uh, that our primary care providers, our nurse practitioners and our physicians often experience trauma in, um, in very uh, acute ways that we would typically uh, ascribe to uh, somebody with PTSD. And not that, our, not that our healthcare workers had PTSD, but they had acute symptoms. So flashbacks, 
nightmares, avoidance of certain situations that brought back memories. Whereas the other healthcare workers within that office, that organization, because we trained everybody, um, you know, the frontline billing, the billing staff, the frontline desk workers, the people that answer the phones, the ultrasound techs, they, the, the other clerical workers and office workers seem to have somatic complaints dealing with that population that were a little bit more mild, so stomach aches, headaches. Um, interestingly enough, those, the people that had those more somatic complaints uh, like that or less acute, more, more long-term chronic um, complaints are also the people who are paid less. So they also can't take as much time off work. Or you know, maybe they're working two jobs because they've got kiddos at home that they're trying to feed. And so it's really interesting. You know, one of the findings was that you know, trauma-informed care and the effects of compassion fatigue really manifest itself very differently in different populations of, of healthcare workers. So that's one of them. Uh, the other takeaway is that um, trauma-informed education works. If you and kind of going back to what I stated earlier, if you can give somebody the tools they need to help themselves, they feel more empowered. If you give them the words and the language to name what they're feeling, even if it's ambiguous, uh, that seems to bring a sense of closure and healing in and of itself. And finally, you know, the thing that you know was just kind of reiterated with community mental health or community health workers as well as behavioral health primary care integration is that it works and that if someone doesn't have to make two or three different stops, or if they're not battling stigma of their neighbor seeing their license plate in the, you know, the parking lot of the community mental health center and thinking they're crazy, you know, which is a lot of times what people feel like in stigma, if you can combine behavioral health into primary care settings, people are much more likely to access it and people are much more likely to be healthy in the long term. Thank you so much for uh, this wonderful conversation we had about mental health and the work that you're doing uh, with trauma-informed care, uh, with uh, fatigue, compassion fatigue. Uh, we've learned a few new things and uh, we commend you on the work that you've done so far. And I look forward to inviting you back and you can tell us more about your findings and what are the new projects that you have uh, going for you. It's been an honor, Doctor. Thank you. And thank you to the listeners uh, for taking your time to um, listen to what we had to say about the different topics related to public health. And we hope you will join us on the next round of um, interviews. Have a good day. <laughs>